This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, uh, author of American Veda. Uh, our podcast, Spirit Matters Talk, and you'll find us at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Dr. G. William Barnard. He is a professor of religious studies as well as a university uh, distinguished teaching professor at Southern Methodist University. He has done a wide range of research in the area of comparative religion, mysticism, uh, social sciences, uh, and spirituality. Uh, we uh, welcome you to the show today, Dr. Barnard, and uh, thank you for taking the time to come on with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, Bill, um, yeah. I, well, I should first, uh, in the interest of uh, full disclosure, uh, Bill and I are old friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but that won't stop me from grilling him. <laughs> <laughs> Never did. <laughs> uh, Bill, um, I think uh, your path to uh, becoming uh, a scholar of religion is an interesting one, and, uh, and I wonder if you'd share some of it with our uh, listeners. What, what brought you uh, to the uh, scholarly study of, of, of religion? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's it's sort of a sort of a long story. So I, I don't hardly know where to begin. I, I think probably um, it makes no sense in some odd way to begin when I was fourteen. Uh, I had a really powerful sort of spontaneous mystical experience when I was a young man, and um, that really was the the key event that sort of led me to my interest in in, in mystical experience and understanding the nature of mystical experience and how to, you know, the value of them and what the, what mystical experiences imply about the nature of who we are as human beings and what's really real. Um, so that was, that was a big event. And then that in turn led me to um, do my own sort of spiritual seeking, began to uh, practice meditation when I was about, uh, oh, I'd say formally around when I was around 17. And, um, and then I eventually, when I was 19, I think it was, uh, in 19, yeah, 1975, um, I met Swami Muktananda, who was a very important, very well-known spiritual teacher um, who came to the United States. He was from India. And um, I was initiated by him, received something called Shaktipat, awakening of the uh, spiritual energy called the Kundalini in uh, 19... In, January of 1975, and um, I became his disciple for about, uh, oh, eight years until he died in 1982. And then after that, I ended up getting my BA in um, religious studies and then went on to get my PhD in, in actually what was is called religion and human sciences, so religion and philosophy and anthropology and psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Barnard, Bill, uh, yeah. How do you define a mystical experience? Well, you know, that, the, the whole issue of definition in religious studies is a real, um, mm-hmm. it's a real charged issue. Um, and so I, I tend to have definitions be held sort of lightly. Mm-hmm. And so with mystical experience, I, I don't have a, like a formal definition. I have more like a, a set of qualities because I, that, that I think are really inherent and um, crucial for mystical experience. Because, you know, I'm, um, my first book was on William James, um, uh, American philosopher and psychologist who was really interested in this subject. And, and he began to gather 
together some accounts of people who've had what he considered to be mystical experience. So he began to sort of say, okay, you know, there are certain qualities that mystical that seem to be, you know, come up over and over again with these people who've had mystical experiences. And so I tend to think of mystical experiences as experiences people have that are um, powerful, transformative, direct experiences of some aspect of reality that those individuals consider to have ultimate significance. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're going to give different names to that level of reality. Let's call it God or the Tao or the Buddha nature. Um, but mystical experiences aren't just sort of like just some mild, warm feeling. They are very powerful and they you typically are extremely trans have long term transformative effects on a person's life. Interesting, uh, Bill. And one of the uh, courses you teach is mysticism East and West. Yeah. Um, from my understanding, that's not a, a common offering at, at the university level. <laughs> Probably uh, not. <laughs> um, well, but and that begs a, an even larger question. You came to the uh, scholarly study of, of religion uh, by first being a seeker and a practitioner and a yeah. devotee. Yeah. Um, most people in in that field uh, do not have that background. Um, how do you approach teaching, it, classroom work as opposed to your research, that um, is distinctive because of your own background? Um, well, <laughs> Yeah, my uh, my colleagues hired me knowing that I'm sort of a weirdo in that way. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, my my pedagogical techniques are sort of they. My, my, I had some run-ins at first with my chair, um, even though he knew that I I had some sort of unique theories about teaching, um, because I I really had to convince him that, you know. When we're dealing with topics like mysticism and spirituality and, and things like this, that you know, it's it. Of course, you want to give students you know accurate, thorough, detailed information about what other people believe and do. But I, I'm I'm just convinced that it's important to also give students um, in a sort of a safe, open-ended way uh, glimpses into what it's like to practice and experience these things. And so, so you know, instead of just giving a history of, of Zen Buddhism and talking about what Zen Buddhists do and what they believe, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. But let's also have them sit for 10 minutes and watch their breath, right? Mm-hmm. And so they can get a, a real empathetic glimpse into just how difficult it is for these Zen Buddhist monks to sit every day for an hour a day or several hours a day doing that, you know? <laughs> and so I, I typically, I very often have, um, you know, some sort of participatory experiential element to the classroom experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If I can follow up, Bill, you're, you're in Dallas, Texas, yeah. at a at Southern Methodist University, which, you know, on the surface at least would seem to be uh, you know, conservative kind of place. Um, how how does the this kind of exposure to 
the non-Christian world in, in not just a, a, an academic way, but in a participatory way. How does, how does that go over with students, with um, the community, and so forth? Um, well, I mean, I've won numerous teaching awards, um, so I think the students like it <laughs> on some level. Um, yeah, um, you know, because I think that, you know, it, it, it allows uh, this, this topic that, you know, before you might think, oh, yeah, there are these strange people over there who do these weird things, and, and you might be sort of fascinated with it, but then when you begin to sort of create bridges in your own experience towards these worlds, these sort of other worlds, then that, then that I think that really opens people's minds a lot right. you know, yeah. to the value, potential value of these other worlds. Bill, I wanted to uh, also follow up on that. Uh, I, first of all, I think it's great that you give some people, so the students, an experiential component to, to what you're teaching because, you know, when I was in college, I studied Eastern philosophy. I really lo liked it, but it would have been incredible if somebody had said, actually, there is, you know, some, some glimpse into inner life uh, that they're, they're referring to that, that you can have in the classroom. And, and I'm wondering, do yeah. you sometimes get a student that gets really lit up and says, look, I really want to have a mystical experience. I want to have a very profound experience. And if you have a student like that, uh, what do you, uh, that really separates himself or herself from the crowd that really wants to follow this uh, to, to whatever degree uh, is possible, uh, what, what do you advise them? Well, I have a couple of things I'll usually do. Um, I often have um, as an option for students, uh, to, you know, um, two, two options, I say. One would be, you know, they, they, for instance, in my mysticism, East and West class, this is the option that they have. Either they can go to, let's say, we have all these different resources, like, for instance, we have a professor on campus who um, is a literally an ordained Zen master, uh, Roshi, um, and he has a Zen center, and so they can go to, you know, his center and sit with the people, you know, twice and actually do an interview and things like that. So they can actually be exposed to a community where they could, if they chose, you know, continue on to have that sort of, uh, you know, more deepening support for the, to cultivate the possibility of having a mystical experience, let's say. Um, but I also give students the possibility of, I teach them in class and then give out a extensive handouts of different types of meditative and contemplative um, exercises. And, you know, I have them practice this at home on their own, um, and they keep a journal of what they've experienced. And, and basically the, the, the idea with this is that they try out five different types of contemplative practices, and then the one that they really feel that they click with the most, they do that one another five times. Mm -hmm. And so they get a sense of what's, what it's like to do one practice over and over again and see what it feels like to deepen into that. And, um, you know, then they write a, a paper sort of looking at what they, you know, what the patterns they've noticed, what obstacles there were, what transformations of any they experienced in their life, and et cetera, et cetera, things like that. Right. So that gives them an opportunity to really sort of dive into practice a little bit more. I, I wish I had, had I wish I had had that class uh, back when I was in college. 
Phil? Yeah. Yeah. Really, and I, if I'd known you could teach such a class, I might not have dropped out of graduate school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I somehow managed to get away with it. <laughs> That's great. I, it, I mean, it actually is. I've actually, I actually have published papers on pedagogy dealing with sort of the, some of the subtle issues that arise with this because you don't want to force anyone to do anything, especially in a classroom setting where they can, they're going to feel it, you know, that you're you know, forcing them to adhere to a certain um, set of beliefs or practices that would go against, you know, what they believe, right? And so, so I mean, it has to, so I, I, since I don't have them chant Hare Rama, Hare Krishna, because that's something they're having to do out loud, that they are, that's specifically sectarian, and, you know, so the practices I have them do are either something that, only they know what they're if they're doing it within themselves, you know, within their own consciousness, or they're so sort of generic that 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 it's not like sort of saying, okay, by doing this, I'm sort of saying yes to the this specific uh, religions, practices, and beliefs, right? Mm. So it's sort of it is tricky, you know, because you, mm. you don't want to be forcing anything down anyone's throat, right? And you don't want to be accused of proselytizing exactly, right. or trying to convert people or anything. Exactly, like right. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, I want to, to have people realize that these, aren't, that these are live options, that these are, um, you know, if they so choose, that, you know, that, 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 that these religious traditions have great depth and beauty as well as potential, you know, problems. And, and have, you seen, have you seen that... Um, many uh, students' uh, attitudes toward uh, sort of the religious other and, and, and uh, traditions they, they were not unfamiliar with uh, was transformative for them? Yeah, oh yeah, especially, I think, I especially see this, you know, just because I get um, with majors, with religious studies majors, mm-hmm. because I see them more than once, right? And so I get to sort of see, to watch them as they sort of, grow and change throughout their college career. So I was thinking of one, I'm thinking this um, young woman um, who came into my introduction to primal religions class. Um, It's a class I'm actually teaching this semester and it's, you know, where we focus on religions that do not have scriptures and religions where that are more danced and sung than they are, you know, anything else. And where the focus is on myth and on um, trance states and things like this. So, so like Native American religions, African religions, Australian Aboriginal traditions, shamanism, things like that. And uh, so this young woman came in because she basically was planning to go to Africa um, that summer, so this was a spring course, um, to basically missionize the heathen. I mean, it was pretty clear, right? I mean, it was pretty explicit. Um, so she, she took this course, and then she went to Africa, and it, the course had changed her enough that when she came back, she, was tell, she told me, she said, you know, I went there, and I was just appalled by my, by my friends because they were treating these people with such contempt. And I, said, I kept trying to tell them, no, no, no these, these traditions have such depth and beauty, and, you know, we shouldn't be, like, assuming that, that they're going to go to hell and things like this, and... And it was really, really amazing, actually. And, and so she ended up becoming a religious studies major and sort of moved very far on the spectrum from sort of a very right-wing biblical literalist to mm-hmm. a pretty open-minded religious pluralist by the end. 
pretty, pretty astonishing, actually. Though, ironically, and this is, we, we and our, my colleagues, we sort of chuckle about this. She still, by the end, was still the president of the, uh, <laughs> there was, I forget, like, like, a, like a student Republicans or something like this, you know, the, mm, so, yeah. the, so, so, so she was still very, very right wing in her political beliefs, which is, <laughs> well, you know, it's very interesting for us. Yeah, yeah I'm very, sure. very interesting. Uh, Bill, uh, you have a real wide range of interests. Uh, that you you've dealt with uh, at, at various times in your career. W what's your focus now? What's your interest in? What area of research are you most focused on at this time? Well, um, for the last ten years, I guess a little more than ten years, I've been researching this new religious movement called the Santo Daimi um, religious tradition that could, it emerged. Bill, could you uh, spell that for listeners? Sure, it's S A N T O, Santo, which means holy in Portuguese, and then Daimi. D A I M E, which in mm -hmm. Portuguese means uh, "give me," because the word "daimi" um, is used in invocations of this religion. So it means like, you know, it's like "give me light, give me love, give me strength." You know, mm -hmm. So it's, it's invocations to the divine, um, and this is a, this is a fascinating religious tradition that's um, emerged in. Basically, it started as a, as a communal religious tradition around the 1930 in a frontier town called uh, Rio Branco in Brazil, uh, way out in the Amazon, and um, started by this um, man named, uh, eventually became known as Mestre Irineo, uh, Irineo Ceja, um, almost seven foot tall, like six foot nine, um, black man, completely illiterate. Um, and he had been exposed when he was a young man as a he was a he was a border guard um, in the border between Brazil and Peru and Bolivia, way out in the rainforest. And he was exposed to the indigenous use of um there's they had a sacred drink called ayahuasca, um, which is a drink that's made of two substances, a vine and a leaf. And uh, this drink is sort of a mind-altering uh, substance. To, and, and so he was exposed to that and eventually became um, convinced that he'd received a command from what he called at that point the queen of the forest to uh, basically start this new religion. And, and uh, you know, like I say, it began around the 1930s. He was understood to be a very, very powerful healer in that region. And he, so he slowly gathered um, disciples. And so basically in this tradition, this um, ayahuasca was re-Christian as the daimi, um, the sacred substance that's understood to be, to actually embody and incarnate the consciousness of the Christ within it. And so by taking it, it's, it's understood to be a genuine communion um, with the Christ consciousness. And it's very, very fascinating, actually. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a lot more we could say about that. But, and but, um, this is uh, centered in uh, in Brazil, in the Amazon, as I understand, right? And uh, but but there are branches of it, and um, um, whatever churches or whatever they're called elsewhere. Yeah. Now they're um, yeah. It began in Brazil, and. Um, by the 1980s, 
it began to leave the Amazon rainforest and there were churches that were set up in different urban areas in Brazil and at a certain point with um, a lot of assistance with this uh, sort of a um, similar but actually quite different um, ayahuasca-based religion called the UDV, the Union du Vegetal, they were able to um, uh, get a legal judgment that that um, basically the, the, that they were free legally to worship in this way, right, mm-hmm. um, to use this sacrament. And so, you know, it's completely legal in Brazil, but um, I would say around the late 80s and early 90s, it began to sort of uh, spread. People from Europe and, and North America came down and began to hear about this tradition, and then they took it back to their countries with them. So at this point, there are churches of the Santa Daime all through South America, Central America, North America, and Europe, and even Japan, Australia. Mm-hmm. Let, let me uh, yeah. ask, uh, wanted to ask about that, because uh, ayahuasca is becoming... Uh, Something you hear more about. There's been articles about it. it it's, it's mentioned in popular yeah. culture. I think there's a there's movies and documentaries where it, it's referred to, and uh, there are people that, from the states uh, and other places, as you mentioned, that go to South America, go to Peru, go to Brazil, and, and uh, study with a shaman or want to have some experience. How safe? How dangerous? Uh, how authentic is that experience? Uh, does, you know, I I'm just wondering because, uh, like you said, it started out one place with one man, then it spread out. And is it become terribly commercialized? What, what? If somebody was asking you about that, well, I'm asking you about yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it, what what sort of advice? What, what information would you give them in regard to that? Yeah. No. I mean, this is that's a really great question because and it's, because I do think it's it is something to be approached with a lot of care and a lot of thoughtfulness. Um, and I, what I would say, one thing to do is important to sort of distinguish between different. Um, ways in context in which you're taking ayahuasca because you know there is this sort of burgeoning what i would call sort of a neo-shamanic um use of ayahuasca especially let's say in the united states um where you know either uh, a group will sponsor a shaman to come to the united states and he or she will give like say a weekend you know ceremony or something um and that's quite different than the Santa Daime. The Santa Daime is a, is a sort of a much more sort of structured religious, you know, setting in which there is a, you know, hymn, uh, you know, hymns that are sung. There's a liturgical calendar, and there's a whole. Um, let's see how to put this. It's much more, you know, it's much more sort of integrated into people's everyday lives in a certain way. Um, the neo-shamanic use, I think, is very powerful. It is a However, it, it, it tends to be more like sort of a, you know, more like sort of a one-shot experience in, a, in essence, mm-hmm. right? And is there, da- is there danger in that, Bill? Is there a kind of ayahuasca tourism uh, and, and a kind of uh, concern that the casual use of these things could sort of start to um, uh, recip- uh, replicate what happened in the 60s with peyote mm-hmm. and other substances? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think the the danger isn't so much with the substance itself. As I think the substance is, as far as I know, has been used for thousands of years, and 
uh, has sort of inherent within it uh, certain. You can't dr- if you drink too much ayahuasca or daimi, you're going to throw up. You know, and so the body just can't tolerate. You can't, so it's really almost impossible to overdose on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but and it's actively. And this is something that people don't. People have so many misconceptions about not just ayahuasca, but just about any sort of psychedelic substances or whether, you know, that are, you know, we almost have to get some terms right. I mean, so psychedelic substances are things, you know, substances like LSD and psilocybin and mescaline and, uh, you know, and then the, the plant substances where these things come from, such as, you know, like the, the peyote and uh, San Pedro, which is, which is the, which both active ingredients is mescaline and then the psilocybin mushrooms, you know, themselves. Um, all of these substances, if they're taken with a particular attitude, like a, of respect and within a particular, you know, context of like a ritual um, and done for spiritual reasons, you know, oftentimes the, they're then called entheogens, um, which means that, you know, uh, which is a coined term meaning... Um, uh, generating God within, which is sort of an interesting way to think about it. Um, but none of these substances are addictive. And if there's been, like, this is, it's, it's really sort of shocking if you begin to look at the history of it. Um, LSD has had like 20 years of, of it was understood to be for for about 15, 20 years, like almost like a wonder drug within psychiatric circles for healing numerous sort of like, I mean, for instance, give you a sense. There were lots of studies showing that just taking LSD like once or twice in a, in a safe clinical setting, you know, would have results of like 80% cured for chronic alcoholism. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like, I mean, and this they, this was just going on and on, you know, for uh, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so I don't think, I think people really have strong, have strongly sort of bought into sort of the, I mean, I'll just say it, governmental propaganda about well, these substances. Yeah, well, you know? Bill, though, I think there's another side. As you know, there's research going on now at New York University and John Hopkins and UCLA yeah. in regard to psilocybin. We had uh, Dr. Anthony Bossis on uh, one of the, yeah. Let NYU heading up the research, but there have also been experiences where, okay, it started out as a, a in a laboratory and doctors handling it back in the forties, fifties, yeah. even. But then when it became recreational and went out to the public and uh, whatnot, yeah. there were people that did have uh, bad experiences with it or were damaged by it, and it could be the context in which it was taken, the formulation yeah. of the drug itself, or whatever like that. Yeah. So I think yeah. that. Uh, there yeah, might have been an overreaction. And like you said, yeah, they've done studies with people uh, that are uh, in final stages of cancer, which had a tremendous effect yeah. on their anxiety levels. Oh, yeah. uh, and I think a study came out of England not long ago about people, uh, uh, alcoholics and people addicted to tobacco that uh, had a very high cure rate oh, uh, yeah. in regard oh, to yeah. that. But there is, um, there, is, there is a safety concern, as I think there should be, uh, because there have been people that have been damaged. Well, I, I mean, I think that, yeah, I, definitely these are very powerful substances, and so they have to be treated with a lot of respect and care. But I think that 
the the research has been pretty conclusive um, that if it's done either in a clinical or in a religious setting mm-hmm. with with appropriate sense of you know setting of intent and things like this that I, I mean, I was looking at this one one study that was done by uh, a doctor named Sidney Cohen um, back in the 70s, and he studied like 5,000 people taking LSD um, over like like 25,000 um, times as t- cumulative, mm. and the, the level of adverse reactions was so minimal, mm-hmm. you know, if done in those sorts of ways. Yeah. Right, and so that's that's the key thing is this notion of set and setting the mindset and the setting the the, the environment in which this is taken. Mm-hmm. Right, that's that's the key factor, and that's that's the thing with with ayahuasca with these things. I mean, I, I think as long as you have a respectful, well trained, uh, respectful setting, and well trained guides that know what they're doing, um, and the people who's taking it are, are prepared and they have adequate supervision and stuff. And personally, I think that it's, um, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a religious freedom issue, mm-hmm. quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Bill, one, one more question about that. Um, in something as structured and traditional as, as a Santo Daime, um, people don't, this is not like a daily practice. From what no, I, I mean occasionally. Uh, well, so, it's done. It's done occasionally, but regularly, and I think mm-hmm. that that's a, a key thing because it's, it's, it's. It, there's a literally a liturgical calendar, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so for instance, um, if you are a, sort of a full-time dynista with a it, near, with they have access to a you know a church that that does this in a regular way. Then you'd probably you'd be drinking dami at least twice a month, mm-hmm. and in, in that between, religious setting. You know, and so, religious. presumably, these are powerful and transformative. And yeah. and so, um, would somebody who has a commitment to this path uh, be doing uh, practices of a different kind oh, yeah. uh, daily, mm-hmm. so that yeah. it's supplement? Yeah, yeah. Okay. without a doubt. I think that's really crucial. I mean. Certainly, I mean, I think that this is this is an issue within among certain dimethyls that I've been talking to. Um, so, for instance, I went to uh, Brazil this last summer, and we did a three-week, literally was literally termed a, a dime dharma retreat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seriously, um, so that dharma meaning the sort of it's, it's a Buddhist and Hindu term that, ha, you know, basically dharma means like sort of religious duty in, in Hinduism, and dharma means basically the Buddhist path almost in, for Buddhists, right? And so it was explicitly understood that we are going to be integrating consciously some of the meditative techniques and practices from these yogic traditions with taking dhani in a, mm-hmm. sort of a more... Because daimi is, daimi is in, the, the Santa Daimi tradition is inherently what's called syncretistic, um, meaning that it's, it's from the get-go um, a, been a fusion of sort of folk Catholicism, indigenous religions, and uh, the 
West African religions that came with the slave trade, um, along with a lot of sort of esoteric uh, background, too. So it's all, for all, very much from the get-go, there's been a sense that people do this better if they have an ongoing meditative practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and Bill, you mentioned before that when this originally started, the gentleman that started it in Brazil um, was Catholic, or I assume Christian, and uh, do they still consider themselves a, a branch of Christianity? Is the Christ figure still uh, a, 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 a part of, of the, their practice? Oh, yeah, very much so. And so the, the, I'd say the two central figures are the Christ and then the Virgin Mother. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, you have in, the, in, in the, the very makeup of this sacrament a fusion of, like I said, I said the two plants, right? One's a, one's a, a shrub that the leaves um, contain DMT, this, the, this very powerful um, mind-altering psychedelic substance um, that actually, by the way, is produced by the human body um, and is in many, many plants and animals, actually throughout the plant and animal kingdom. And then you have the vine, which is... Uh, a substance that um, it has within it's called harmaline and harmine, which are uh, beta carbolides that that act so that um, our body, because our body produces DMT just naturally, it has to have some sort of safeguard so that you know we're not constantly, in essence, sort of in these altered states, right? And so our body has. Um, it, Especially in, in in the stomach and, and the sort of digest, digestive tract, has these um, what's called MAO inhibitors that sort of act to neutralize uh, the activity uh, uh, of DMT in the body. Mm-hmm. And so, what happens with the vine is that that it um, deactivates the MAO inhibitors in the body, so it allows DMT that's in the leaves to be um, to be absorbed into the bloodstream, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so those two plants, want, the leaf is considered to be female and linked to the, to the Virgin Mother, to the female aspect of divinity. And then the vine is understood to be net masculine, linked to the male aspects of divinity. So within the Santa Daini, it's, it's understood that, that the divine nature is itself inherently male and female, this fusion of it. And that each of us, as you drink the daimi, is in essence becoming this new creation, this, you know, link to that Christ consciousness, mm-hmm. the sun, in essence, right? So become, so that's sort of a, a real major mm-hmm. goal of the Santa Daimi is to awaken to your divine nature. Bill, if I can segue uh, to a related uh, topic in another sure. area of your your. Uh, interest as a scholar, at least yeah. in the past. Um, here you're focusing on, on mystical experience uh, a lot in your work, uh, yeah. and um, you are, uh, one of the books you've uh, uh, published, uh, you're co-editor of a book called Crossing Boundaries, which, yeah. which took on the questions of the relationship between mystical experience and uh, ethics and ethical yeah. behavior. Yeah. Um, so um, presumably, uh, you've seen people uh, be transformed by mystical experiences. 
uh, is the, what uh, this is a controversial subject, as you know? Is there right. a relationship between mystical experience and subsequent behavior and ethics and morality and so forth? What is <laughs> your thinking about this? Oh my goodness! Yeah. Okay. How to summarize that <laughs> a, a whole book book level of thinking into like a, a, a terse little yeah. uh, soundbite, right? Um, because it is a complicated question, right? Um, yeah. In that in that book. Um, I was Jeff Kripal was my co-editor with this, and um, we sort of playfully sort of sparred with each other about this issue because he was convinced that the evidence is pretty clear that mystical experiences are amoral, um, meaning that that they open people up to these you know powerful experiences of of, of altered states of consciousness, but they they really don't have any um, necessary positive effect on someone. In fact, in fact, can often lead to really problems of grandiosity and people feeling, um, you know, that they are beyond moral codes and therefore can act in amoral ways. Even mm-hmm. and there are there is evidence of that. Yeah, we've right. seen it. You know? right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, I mean, quite a lot of accounts of that. Um, however, I tend to sort of think. I tend to think that mystical experiences are what I call transmoral. I know that sort of may seem, it's sort of a, it's same, same way we have something like transpersonal psychology. Transmoral to me means that it goes beyond morality, but that doesn't mean that it's amoral or immoral, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to think that mystical experiences, let's see how I put this, um, have at least the potential to be dramatically positively transformative because you look at the history of uh, you know religious you know accounts of the different saints and mystics of different religious traditions and they often are understood to be incredibly these are like the moral exemplars of those religious traditions right and so I don't think that's an accident right yeah I I would think Bill that uh, and I want to know what you think about this that if somebody has a mystical experience you know, they have that experience and then they could come out of it and actually be uh, a, a, a better person, a more moral person. Uh, they may or may not. But if somebody uh, has that mystical experience and then that, that actually leads to uh, them elevating their consciousness to a higher level that is reflected by, you know, what that mystical experience represents or incorpor- integrating that and, and, and yeah. having their life more on that level of, of awareness, then that uh, should, in fact... Uh, lead to a person that, that is uh, of a higher level of morality. And, and in fact, I think one of the criteria for uh, evaluating somebody, if there's any reason to do that, in terms of th- does this person or did this person that once existed, uh, were they of a higher consciousness, uh, that, that it would be you know, necessarily reflected in their behavior and their interactions with others. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that is the ideal, and I think there are, mm-hmm. um, however, <laughs> you know, clearly many many examples of people who have, you know, had had many numerous mystical experiences and can have very very powerful spiritual insights and and act, often act as really profound spiritual teachers and leaders, but then. Um, have been less than exemplary mm-hmm. ethically, you know? And so right. I think that it is a complicated question, mm-hmm. right? Because I think that we have freedom to make genuine ethical choices. Mm-hmm. And just because 
we've had these profound moments of sense of unity with all and etc. That doesn't mean that necessarily we're therefore inherently, inevitably going to become better ethical people. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to, I would like to think that there's a nudging in that direction and uh-huh. a strong, yeah. strong movement in that direction. But see, that's, that's the whole basis of that book. But, but it's not that's inevitable. Debate, you know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, so, Bill, I mean, and, and that means that it's like, you've got to be careful because so for instance, even with the, like with that neo ayahuasca um, tradition I was talking about, that's which I didn't really get around to saying. I think I think this needs to be said that there you can have some highly charismatic shamans, for instance, who may be really skilled at working with this substance and guiding people and working with it, and and yet you know there have been a lot of cases of people being sexually abused mm-hmm. and things like this. Yeah, you know, and I so I think that. People sometimes think, oh, if there's, oh, there's this shaman person, so there must be this, this completely good person. Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right? So you have to be really careful and really, you know, mm-hmm. on the lookout. For those Same as it ever was. Right, right. Exactly, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's not just the shaman. It's also the right, mystics and right. the swamis and the roshis and whatever. And the priests and the rabbis. And the priests, well, <laughs> definitely the priests. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, thank you so very much. Uh, I have many more questions, so we'll have to do a, another interview at some time. Phil, any final points? And also, we want to mention uh, uh, your books and publications. But Phil, anything else? Yeah, you want to Bill. Bring up? Bill is the author of uh, two um, iconic figures in in uh, the social sciences: William James and Henri Bergson. And we didn't get a chance to talk much about it, but at least you yeah. can mention the titles of the book, Bill. Yeah, the, the first book is called Exploring Unseen Worlds, William James and the Philosophy of Mysticism. And the second one's called Living Consciousness, the Metaphysical Vision of Henri Bergson. And they're both published by SUNY Press. Right. And another book is uh, Crossing Boundaries, Essays on the Ethical Status of Mysticism, which is something yeah. scratch the surface on today, I think, yeah. Exactly right, and it's a little harder to get get a hold of that book because the publisher went out of business, so, unfortunately, <laughs> very sadly. <laughs> it's a collector's item. So. It is. It is. <laughs> thank you so Bill, much. Thanks so much for being with us. Right. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Spirit Matters, located at spiritmatterstalk.com, our podcast. Uh, our guest today, Dr. G. William Barnard, professor at uh, Southern Methodist University. Fascinating work. Uh, absolutely uh, look forward to having you back on Uh, many more questions so thanks again for taking the time you're very welcome